Hi friends, this is Linda and you're listening to Calling Water. Each week on our podcast, we look at a passage of scripture and ask ourselves two questions. What does it mean and what does it call us to do? In today's episode, Why Do You Behave As You Do?, we're looking at the story of Adoniah attempting to take the throne by force in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 2. We'll see how his wrong motives more than anything led to his downfall and how that serves as a cautionary tale for us today. Let's get started. Transitions are tricky. People in power rarely want to give up that power, and people in line want to grab a hold of the power at all costs. Although it's not always the case, I suppose, there tends to be noticeable tension when it comes time to hand over the reins to the next person. This happens in government at every level with each election, or when pro-athletes need to give up the spotlight in favor of their protégés, and, you know, even more so in churches. More often than not, We see after a senior pastor, for example, retires or is otherwise forced to step down, churches break apart due to infighting over things like not being able to agree on a successor. Why is a peaceful transfer of power so hard to achieve? It's because the tone is usually set by the person who is leaving. We're able to witness healthy transitions when the person stepping down does so with grace and appoints a successor well in advance and sets them up for success with sufficient training and invites everyone to be a part of the process to treat each other well and to take care of each other. And anything short of that, the usual chaos will ensue. And then it just becomes a Hunger Games of sorts where Everyone is just driven by their own entitlement and power-hungry impulses rather than what's truly best for an organization. Now, today's Bible story in 1 Kings chapters 1-2 through shows one such instance of a very unhealthy transition of power. And, you know, it even reads somewhat like a soap opera. There's just so much happening in this text. So here's the summary. By now... David, who we've been talking about for a few weeks now, is very old and very frail, and the text tells us cannot retain any body heat for himself. So his attendants scour the kingdom for a young woman to become his caregiver and also to lie beside him to keep him warm. Now, it's not clear as to why they don't have one of David's wives or the other woman already in his harem to fulfill this role, but the Bible tells us that they find a beautiful virgin girl named Abishag to take care of David. And contrary to what the purpose might have been, the king was not intimate with her. Now, knowing that his father's health is failing, one of David's sons, Adoniah, makes a play for the throne. As the eldest living son, he would seem like the logical heir to the public eye. Now, we don't really know much about Adoniah up until this point, other than the fact that his mother was named Haggith, and this description in verse 6, which says, His father had never rebuked him by asking, Why do you behave as you do? 
He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. And we can infer from this description that Adoniah was probably used to getting what he wanted from others, most likely because he was attractive and no one, not even his father, ever disciplined him for anything. Now, this explains why, instead of talking to his father, he confers with a few supporters from the royal court, and then he has a big celebration to name himself as the next king of Israel. Now, we discover that this was a presumptuous move, despite the fact that Adoniah was probably next in line for the throne. In verses 11 through 14 of 1 Kings chapter 1, the prophet Nathan, who had not been invited to Adonai's self-coronation, talks to Bathsheba, remember her, and tells her that she needs to do something about this. And he tells her to go to King David and remind him that he had once sworn to her that her son Solomon would become king. And Nathan tells her while she's in there, he would come back her up. Now, the thing is, we're not sure that David had ever made this promise to Bathsheba because we don't find it in the text prior to this moment. And, you know, perhaps he had, and it was a promise only Nathan and Bathsheba knew about. Because if it was widely known fact that this promise was in place, then Adoniah probably would not have had as many supporters enabling his attempt to become king. And another possibility is that this promise wasn't ever made at all. Nathan knew that his life was in jeopardy, as well as that of Bathsheba, Solomon, and others who were loyal to David, you know, the ones who weren't invited to the celebration. Nathan knew that the first thing the new king would do would be to eliminate all his rivals and threats to the throne. So his counsel to Bathsheba was really a way to save themselves. Uh, it wouldn't be outrageous to think that David was probably senile now and his memory was not what it used to be. So he could be quite easily manipulated. Regardless of which version of these events is true, the outcome is the same. David finds out from Bathsheba that Adoniah had named himself king without express permission from his father, and Nathan arrives to back her story. David instructs Nathan and the other priests who are not a part of Adonai's camp to parade Solomon throughout the kingdom on David's own mule as the rightful king of Israel. Upon hearing about this development, Adonai's guests practically flee. They disperse. And Adoniah is now the one fearing for his life. So the text tells us that he clings to the horns of the altar, knowing that they would not kill him in such a sacred place. Then he sends word to Solomon saying he would not leave this place until Solomon promises to spare him. So Solomon responds in verse 52. If he, Adoniah, shows himself to be worthy, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Now, this is an ominous proclamation, and it turns out it's a bit of foreshadowing as well, because Adoniah does show himself to be unworthy, and evil is found in him, as a matter of fact. In 1 Kings chapter 2, 
Adoniah goes to Bathsheba and says the following in verse 15. As you know, the kingdom was mine. All Israel looked to me as their king. But things changed, and the kingdom has gone to my brother, for it has come to him from the Lord. So he lays it on pretty thick here with the guilt trip, a smidgen of false humility, and then he tops it off with a seemingly benign request. And their request is this. He asked Bathsheba to ask Solomon to give Abishag to him as his wife. Wait, Abishag, the young woman who had been David's nurse in the previous chapter? Yes, the very same. Now, this might appear to be a harmless ask, but it's anything but. Because if it was, he could have just appealed to Solomon directly. But Adonai chooses to go through Bathsheba, knowing she has sway with Solomon. So why this conniving move? Now remember, Abishag was there to nurse David and to keep him warm, right? So that means he was at David's side the entire time when this whole ordeal went down. So she would have witnessed everything when Nathan and Bathsheba came to talk to David specifically. So she would prove to be a useful ally to have, especially since she was privy to all of this information. And this shows that Adoniah had not given up his claim to the throne, regardless of what he said to Bathsheba's face. Now Bathsheba had to have known that this was, like she had to have known what was happening, but the text doesn't tell us whether or not she did. But she does convey the message to Solomon. And even though she doesn't say the message originated from Adoniah, Solomon knows right away that Adoniah had asked this. And he understands that Adoniah is a threat to the throne. And as he had promised in the previous chapter, Solomon orders Adoniah and everyone who conspired with him to be killed. Now, why didn't Adonijah just admit defeat? He had gotten a guarantee that he would be spared if he had just stayed on the straight and narrow. Why did he have to antagonize his half-brother, who was now the king? And one minute, he's clinging to the horns of the altar, and the next, he's plotting for the crown again. Why do you behave as you do, said no one to Adonijah. Well, that's really the question, isn't it? Why did he behave the way he did? And while we're on that, why do we behave the way we do? Now, this is a very similar question we ask kids all the time. We ask kids, what do you think you're doing? And that's a rhetorical question. We're not asking kids to become meta all of a sudden about their behavior. It's just another way of saying, don't do that. When you see a kid jumping up and down on a table, We say, what do you think you're doing? And all we want them to do is just to stop jumping on the table. Now, 1 Kings emphasizes the fact that not a single person, and especially not his father, told Adoniah, don't do that. Growing up as a prince under a king who, in the eyes of the people, could do no wrong, everything was just handed to him. No one guided him. No one told him that being as spoiled as he probably was would not do him any favors. 
So why did Adoniah behave as he did? Most likely, he really didn't know better. According to his worldview, he had done everything right. Now, in a world where nepotism still happens and it's the people with connections who end up on top, we are similarly groomed to believe that in this world, we need to play the game to win. We need to entertain at least a modicum of scheming and plotting to get what we want. And you know, it, it might be true. You might have to be just like everyone else to get what you want. At what cost, though? Christians are often told one of two things. One, live modestly and indulge in nothing because worldly pleasures are evil. Or two, succeed, be better than everyone so that you can show everyone how blessed you are as a follower of Christ. But why are these usually the only options we're presented with? Because they're both garbage when it comes to goals. They're both focused on outward performance when everything we know about God tells us we ought to be more concerned with the intentions behind what we show on the outside. We behave as we do because we think that's how Christians should behave. And sure, there are many outward things we can do to convince others that we are doing right by God. But as we all know so well, and like God told the prophet Samuel when he was sent to anoint a humble shepherd boy to become the king of Israel, the Lord looks at the heart. Our behavior has to be driven by the right motivations. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us some insight as to how we might come by such things. Now, it all starts with the thoughts and emotions that are percolating inside of us. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31 tells us, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, this would have been very good advice for David to have given his son Adoniah, well, all his sons actually, and good advice for himself as well. But never mind them, this is something all of us can start doing immediately. Now, this verse doesn't tell us that we can never be angry or bitter. It's not telling us to stop being human. We can have the feelings. However, we cannot allow those feelings to control our next steps. Rather, verse 32 tells us, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Notice this verse doesn't say, Be nice, because anyone can be nice, or rather anyone can seem nice, because niceness is not a condition of your heart. Niceness is an outward show of politeness and flattery, and it's completely possible to do without even caring about another living soul. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 tells us instead to be kind and compassionate, to actually care, then forgive just as Christ forgave us, or just as in Christ God forgave us, excuse me. Now, this is not to be taken lightly, friends. To be on par with the brand of kindness that God has shown us is, well, impossible, but that should be the benchmark for us. And we can give of our time and resources to those who are less fortunate, 
we can forgive others even when we feel like we're in the right so that we can promote peace instead of pride. And sometimes being kind means having to convey some truths that people might not want to hear at all, but we tell them nonetheless because we genuinely care. Our kindness compels us to sit down with a friend we've noticed has been exhibiting self-destructive patterns. Our kindness helps us reject the advances of someone who would threaten our current relationships. Our kindness disciplines our children and corrects damaging habits. Being nice in any of these situations won't help anybody. So what has today's message called you to do? Because I challenge you to start with the same question that David should have asked his son. Why do you behave as you do? Now search yourself honestly and find out what drives you to do the things you do. And if you find that instead of kindness and compassion, you are driven by bitterness, rage, and anger, it's time you shook up that pattern. Start by relinquishing that death grip you have on every form of malice, as Ephesians tell us, tells us, and see how God can transform your life and everything in it when we conform ourselves more and more to the way God wants us to be. Let's pray. God, we've all experienced or at least heard stories of when the church had become fractured during seasons of transitions. And we're left wondering why these things happen. But we needn't look too far for the answers because if we're honest with ourselves, we can search within to see that our hearts are so often filled with anger and greed, envy, bitterness, resentment, all the things that causes us to behave in ways that displease you and hurt those around us. Rather than ostentatiously clinging to the horns of the altar with malintent in our hearts, teach us how to operate from a place of kindness and compassion as you always had and always will have toward us. And thank you for loving us enough to discipline us and teach us the right way to go. In Jesus' name, amen.